Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You are listening to the Women's Podcast, brought to you by Green and Black's Organic Chocolate. Discover a different kind of dark. Welcome back to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Hope you're all getting on okay, those of you with children or relatives who've gone back to school, and also, of course, those of you with Leaving Cert students who got their results this week. It was the most bizarre results day I think we've ever seen, and I hope that things work out for anybody you know who got their results. We'll be returning to the schools in terms of how it's working out for parents and children in a couple of weeks. So if you've anything you want to observe on the Leaving Cert or on schools in general or anything else, get in touch with us on email, thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com or on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram at ITWomensPodcast. And I don't want to be a tease, but in a couple of weeks, we are hoping to have some very exciting news about our big night in the second season of which we hope to be bringing you very soon. It's exciting, but I can say no more than that at the moment. We've a packed episode today. Later on, I will bring you my conversation with a fantastic writer and comedian who, through a string of hilarious and quite erotic lockdown tweets inspired by the deeply enigmatic manager of Liverpool, Jurgen Klopp, got a two book deal and has had a quite a life changing pandemic. That's later on. But first of all, speaking of life changing, one of the things that can alter a woman's life in a way she might not always imagine or be pleased about is the menopause. I hope you all agree that we're living through better times when we can have proper no-holds-barred conversations about things like periods and sex and abortion and menopause, which comes to all women eventually, but it's often something hidden or not talked about because it still has a stigma attached for some reason. We have had lots of emails over the past few months asking us to talk about the M word, so I hope you'll get something from this conversation However far along your menstrual life you are, whether you're a young woman who's only had periods for a few years or an older woman with menopause behind her. One of our listeners who got in touch about menopause was Helen Kerwin, who's 48 and going through perimenopause since last summer. And Helen says her life has totally changed and none of the symptoms were on her radar so she speaks really honestly about what she's been going through. And then we also had Quiva Hartley, a menopause specialist and the clinical director and doctor of a place called the Menopause Hub in Mount Mary in Dublin. And I like that a place exists called the Menopause Hub. 
I really hope you find this conversation useful. Helen, thank you so much for joining us. And we'll be talking to Quiva too about the same subject. Helen, you sent in a very personal and really honest email to us sharing your experience with perimenopause. So can you just tell us about your experience and how it has impacted your life over the last year? And I suppose why you wanted to reach out to us about it. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on, Roisin. And it's not really something that I would normally do to reach. I'm quite a private person, but honestly, why did I reach out? My life has been hugely impacted. And um, the menopause was not on my radar other than I, I suppose I'm aware of I'm coming into that type of an age group. My mother didn't suffer from it, from anything in, in the transition into the menopause. My friends hadn't been talking about it really. Um, you know, a few jokes here and there about our age and so on, but Otherwise, it, it just wasn't on my radar. And about a year ago, my I suppose my quality of life is it sounds a bit dramatic, but the quality of my life just was changing. And it felt like symptom after symptom was coming on me. And eventually I went to the GP and I wasn't even aware of the term perimenopause. I wasn't sure if it was anything to do with that. I wasn't sure if it was just aging. Was there something else that was going on? So you know, I wanted to reach out because it's such a transition, I suppose, reflecting back. It's impacted me. It's impacted my life. I suppose it's impacted those around me in terms of how I am, my energy levels. I work full time. I'm 48, you know, maybe just to give a background in case anybody else is listening in a similar position. So I started my journey by by reaching out to the GP. And at the time I reached out to yourself and Suzanne Roisin for the podcast, which I listen to every week. Uh, super. Um, I was, I suppose I just wanted the dialogue to happen. Well, we're glad you did contact us. Tell us about the symptoms because you said your life, it was a dramatic change. So what are we talking about? I mean, how did you start to be affected? Yeah, good question. And when I look, when I look at it online, there's so many different symptoms of the menopause. For me personally, the main ones to start with were fatigue. The only thing I can describe. So I have a I have one son who's almost 13. So the fatigue I can only describe like early pregnancy, just mm-hmm. absolute exhaustion, getting past three or four o'clock in the afternoon is sometimes a struggle. I used to love that tiredness in pregnancy, actually. I but, know. you know, it's different to having it for no reason, you know, for it is. no apparent reason. Or and whatever. it's different when you've got yeah. like a 12 year old, 13 year old looking <laughs> for dinner and you've got work and you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you're not able to go off and have your little naps really are you in that situation close the door and say right time for me now Mm. Um, so the fatigue the poor concentration so again in in work like I said I work full-time I work in IT as an associate director so it can be full-on my concentration levels it was it had me doubting myself in work Um, very heavy bleeding and irregular which for me was very unusual so always had a very regular menstrual cycle and that the heavy bleeding, I have to say, was imp- got worse and worse. That was that was uh, really just impacted. And I think that's something we don't hear people talk about very much because I know, I mean, I I don't know where I'm at with, on the perimenopause kind of whatever runway or whatever you want to put it like, but um, I know those very heavy periods and it's quite debilitating and quite awkward and difficult to kind of navigate. And I, I mean, it's just you don't hear people talking about it very much. No, I mean, you don't. The pads that you need for a very heavy period are very big or, you know, the, the, the tampons no. don't really do it. and no, it's or both at the same time. Sorry yeah. for the, the grossness. But yeah. It, yeah, even, just even... Um, 
being out, being in a work meeting that's longer than 45 minutes, you know, the practicalities of it, um, what you're wearing, what you're carrying with you if you're out and about. It's, yeah, the practicalities, it can be, and it can, it can knock your confidence. Because obviously when you started to have all this, it was before lockdown, so you were out and about and doing things. I, and I, remember, worrying those, I about. remember those days well. <laughs> the olden, ye olden days. Yeah. Um, you know, worrying about stains on your on your clothes or are you showing or that kind of, yeah. even the physical um, pain and cramps and stuff as well. And I think just, I mean, that can't help with, um, and maybe Quee will talk to it, the energy levels, if you're losing that much blood, it, it definitely, it doesn't help. I would say, in terms of energy levels. Did you feel like you got much support from the doctor or were you disappointed with that or how did it go? I would have to say it was a journey, Roisin. I, I went to the GP who's super, so it's a female GP that I've known for, for a long time. And she listened to what the, the main symptoms were, referred me on to a gynecologist. I went through you know some discussions with her, an internal scan, and then she passed me on to another gynecologist for um, a procedure. And each of the people along the route, I suppose, had an opinion on, you know, what the treatment might be, which symptom to focus on most. I have to say one thing, though, the nurse, uh, I got my bloods done on the first GP visit this time last year. And the nurse rang with the, the results and said, your hormones look normal. But honestly, it's not a major indication. It's, it's very hard to, you know, to test for something like that if you're perimenopausal or menopausal. But what she said to me, and it really just kept me going, was don't suffer in silence. It was just super. It was, you know, the way I think some women, we can kind of just go along. We can, we're, you know, raising our families. We're working. We're, you know, supporting our parents. We just keep going. So just to have another female say to you, don't suffer in silence, pursue this was super. And you went on HRT. So how did that work out for you? Because I think, again, uh, we hear a lot of things about HRT and we worry about taking certain certain things. What, what was your perception of, of hormone replacement therapy? Yeah. So at the time I went to the, the first gynecologist uh, and she was recommending HRT after half an hour's consultation. You know, it was I think it was very topical. It was in the news at the time about, um, you know, breast cancer and so on. So it was very topical. But she talked me through it. And to be honest, my mindset at that stage was I'm just surviving. I'm not really living here, so I'll try it. So I agreed to try it for six months and see how it worked out. And how did you get on with it? Um, when I went back six months later um, and she was saying, how are you? At, at the end of listening to me, she said it should have made a difference. It's, you're sort of saying, mm, well, a little bit. or So she said that's not the problem. So you know, did an internal exam. And it turns out there were other other issues that I had that I got sorted with a different gynecologist and, and all fine now. But now I'm on a different um, approach to HRT. So I have the Mirena coil and I have an estrogen patch. So different to if the original HRT was medication um, orally, HRT orally. So I've stopped that and tried a different approach. And it, it seems to be much better, I have to say. That's good. How did you feel, you know, in the worst of it, talking to friends and family and being open about what you were experiencing or even your, your workmates? Was it mm. something you could talk about or did you suffer in silence? Like, did you kind of hide it away? I definitely suffered in silence, you know, and I think some close female friends, maybe in work, who would be quite open, tentatively started talking about it. But, you know, there were funny discussions where we were talking about something and the word menopause never came up. It was, oh, at our age or, you know, I'm, I'm having a hot, like just 
humor, I think, but it, it helped anyway for any sort of dialogue. I have to say the the work at the HR team in in work. My boss, who's male, uh, super supportive, and I think I had an excruciating conversation where I literally had to explain to him he was working from home at the time, so this was pre-COVID, and I was in the office and I rang him. Um, I closed the door to a meeting room. I rang him and I just said, I just said I'm just exhausted. I'm trying, you know, I'm doing my best. Whatever I said, and I'm even embarrassed thinking about it now. But without even saying the word menopause, totally skipping around it. You know, I think the last thing I said was, so the doctor says it's not unusual for somebody of my age. Cringe. But luckily he's, you know, I, I'm really supported that way. The, the work environment that I'm in, um, it's an American multinational. Diversity and inclusion is is really topical at the moment. And hopefully we can talk about something like that in terms of getting it on people's radar under that banner, possibly. Yeah, I'm going to bring you in now, Quiva, if that's okay. I'm just wondering what you're thinking, listener, Helen, because you're something of a menopause expert. We're on a Zoom call here and your name isn't even your name. It's just the menopause. (laughs) So I'm expecting you to have all the answers here. (laughs) Oh, God, no pressure. I'll do my best. So, Helen, yeah, it's so, so good to hear someone share their experience and share their story. So thank you so much. And and it is so hard, I think, to talk about something really personal and quite difficult. Um, And the first thing I would say, I mean, it just strikes me how, you know, your story is not unusual. It's so typical of, of so many women that I would talk to on a daily basis. And I think, you know, you describing, look, it was like waves of symptom after symptom, as you described at the beginning, and and the impact it's having not just on you, but on those around you, like your family and even, you know, in the workplace. I hear that all the time. I think it's a really typical way of describing how people start their perimenopause. Um, But obviously, hugely individual, and it can be different for everybody. And some women are really lucky, just like, you know, I'm sure we can all remember in school, there were girls who had you know, periods that were totally debilitating and painful and others who seemed to have, you know, nothing. And we were all sort of jealous of them. And so, but it shows you how hormones can be so individual. But yeah, first of all, thank you so much for sharing your stories. I think it's so important that people talk about it. And and just in terms of your story, Quiva, you work in something called the Menopause Hub in Dublin, which I did not even know existed. What made you want to specialise in this area that still has a bit of a taboo around it? Yeah, it does. I think, um, as I as we kind of said before, you know, I think menopause is almost like a dirty word at times. People don't want to talk about it. Um, but I find, like, I so I'm trained as a GP, um, but I've always loved women's health in in particular. And I had moved abroad. I moved to Canada in 2014, and I worked in a really large women's clinic over there with some really like inspirational female doctors who really made me feel like I could sort of explore an interest in a kind of specialist area and I had noticed a trend in a lot of the women that were coming into me which you know maybe I don't know had I just not noticed it previously but I would see someone who would come in for you know a particular problem like their periods or like they would come in for their pill prescription or whatever it was and they would start talking about these symptoms with their hands sort of on the door handle like on the way out the door they'd mention oh, by the way, and it sort of occurred to me eventually that, you know, it was embarrassment or they or they were reluctant to prioritize these symptoms, like that it was wrong somehow to say, look, this is really affecting me. Look, I know everybody and they'd often qualify it. Oh, I know everybody goes through menopause and I know I should just be sort of putting up with it. 
but and then you'd hear about how the enormous impact it would have on their life these debilitating symptoms so it sort of ties in I think with how women feel I don't know increasingly invisible I guess as we age and just how totally wrong that is so even though I've had you know kind of extra training from um, a women's health perspective and a, like uh, you know lots of experience at this stage in women's health I realized I knew very little actually about how to manage menopause and perimenopause it wasn't really a focus of my training previously so I did some extra exams and some extra training over in Canada and became a bit of a menopause nerd and, and then came home to Ireland and, and, and here I am what sort of age were you, Quiva, when you were becoming the menopause nerd? You didn't have, you weren't near having the menopause yourself at that point. Uh, no, true. I mean, I think we can all relate to, you know, the female experience in general and certainly to a lot of kind of, you know, menstrual, like, you know, issues related to your periods and all that kind of thing. And the kind of, when I was in Canada, because it was a, a women's clinic, I would have seen this kind of repeated presentation that was really similar. There was a trend, like I said, um, but that's not to say, you know, menopause can happen to many different people and in many different ways. Mm. And obviously there's the, you know, women can have kind of normal menopause in inverted commas, but there's also menopause that happens not naturally, like from taking medication, from, you know, from surgery, other things. So I had had some experience in my own sort of medical background myself actually with some with a lot of menopausal symptoms that would have been due to medications for other reasons so um so I felt I was able to relate but look it's all it's different for everybody we're all different you know yeah. could we talk about something and maybe maybe Helen you can come in as well um on this that embarrassment factor right so Quiva you've talked to a lot of women you see them all the time and their hand is on the door and they're not quite able to say the words in the way they maybe want to where is that coming from? Why are we so embarrassed about something that happens to every woman and that, you know, it's inevitable and it's nothing to be ashamed of and it's part of the natural cycle of our lives as women? Where does that come from that we have to hide away from it? We can't speak to our boss in the actual language, like Helen said, you know, the, it's my <laughs> aid and all these euphemisms and things. What's your insight <laughs> where that comes from, Quiva, and maybe how we can get out of that? I think because menopause isn't a really sexy topic, it's not sexy to talk about aging and vaginas and all that. And like getting past the stigma and shame about aging, I think is something we still yet to achieve. And this constant re reinforcement around us, or certainly that I feel anyway, like that we shouldn't age somehow and women should constantly strive to look and be younger and 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 people associate menopause with being like old and all the negatives that come with that and it's just totally wrong and and for a lot of women for most women you have most of your life still ahead of you like you know why would you just put up with feeling crap for like you know another 30 40 years why accept that but yeah I think I think it's just it's not a very sexy topic you yeah know? Yeah, well, we're going to we're trying to make it sexy on the women's podcast. Helen, would you agree with that? Uh, that's full of embarrassment factor. I suppose it's to do with it's most embarrassment factor. But I everything. think, like you mentioned earlier, Roisin, and you also alluded to Aquiva, is the sense of just keep going, and and that's what we do um, in many other areas of our lives, family, work. You know, we, we just keep going because we have to. We're we're supporting a lot of people around us, maybe. And um, for me, I suppose for me as well, fear, you know, I'm still ambitious. I'm still, I get a huge amount from my work. 
Um, I'm still studying at night, you know, and I have done since um, my son was two. All of that, I don't want to be perceived in a different way, maybe, mm. because it's not mm. true. This is, these are symptoms that are happening to me. Um, and especially in work in my career, I don't want to have less opportunity. Um, um, I don't want my family to treat me differently, maybe. What do you think about that, Quiva, that kind of perception that you'll be dismissed or you won't be seen as as vital or as valuable as an, as an employee? I think they're both like just hugely, hugely valid and really important points that that there is this feeling you're going to be treated differently. And like you said, that you'll be seen somehow in a different light altogether if you're as if it moves you into some other category of like or some other species or something just because you've gone through menopause. And and yeah, so I think I think that's really nail on the head, actually. Um, and I think there is a lot of fear about aging, about how people are seen, about how you feel about yourself, maybe as well. So, yeah, I think that's really, really accurate. Yeah. Well, listen, you said you already declared that you're a menopause nerd. So I think you need to show us your credentials, Quiva, and tell us oh, God. Okay. a bit of the nuts and bolts about menopause. You know, tell us about perimenopause and menopause and what are the most common sy- symptoms and how long it lasts. And I know it's very individual. I, um, I have a sister who it happened to and it was very, very, I don't know, I don't want to use the word easy, but it wasn't something that she had that disrupted her life. Right. And that is a, a fact for some women. Lucky them. But for a lot of people, there are, like Helen, have that experience where it's far from easy. So can you talk us through maybe just some of the things people can expect who are listening, who maybe think that the menopause is very, very far away from them and not on their radar? <laughs> it, was for, it wasn't for Helen either. So sure. So perimenopause is really the term that we use for when your hormone levels start to change or fluctuate, but you're your symptoms might start appearing at that point. So you might still have periods, although they could become irregular, like heavier or lighter, or they could become more frequently or actually further apart. So just a change in your menstrual pattern um, and then sometimes associated symptoms. And that usually lasts then until about 12 months after your final period. So once you've gone a full year with no bleeding, then we consider you to be postmenopausal. And on average, that would happen to women at around the age of 50 or 51, but really from any time from around the age of 40. And again, this is just an average, I guess, that you know we will see people start to develop these changes and start to develop symptoms. So you need to be kind of keeping an eye out almost. And um, from, yeah, from late 30s, early 40s. But, and as you, you know, pointed out, Roisin menopause, so individual and lots and lots of pretend, actually it's a bit intimidating. We have on the Menopause Hub website, a symptom checker for women to go and look at. And, and I don't know, does it make them feel better to know, ah, these are all, you know, these symptoms I've had, that's great. These are all part of my menopause. Or does it really freak them out? Because there must be about 40 or 50 symptoms on the symptom checker, like really overwhelming. But it's anyway, so obviously most people don't get all of these symptoms, thankfully. And so there is a lot of variability. Actually, even in the world, there's quite a bit of variability. So like where we are and in the U.S., we associate, say, I think the most classic symptom that people would know would be hot flushes. But in somewhere like Japan, it's actually shoulder pain. It's one of the more common symptoms um, that people present with. And I suspect it might be due to maybe genetic factors or like, I don't know, lifestyle and diet and culture and all these different things. So it varies even across the planet, you know. Um, so we see, yeah, we see all these symptoms start to, to occur. And, and generally in perimenopause, so between 
on average between sort of 40 and 50, you've had this change in your periods, you might start getting some almost like PMS type symptoms, but worse. So things like bloating and breath tenderness, or some people find that their sleep starts to go off the rails a bit, headaches, irritability. I mean, I can keep going here. You're going to have Ellen's to dive in. because <laughs> Ellen's nodding away at every single thing you're saying there. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a long, it's a long list, you know, and and um, and a lot of people, I think some of the problem is not even recognizing that they, you know, the new joint aches and pains that they have are actually because of something hormonal. And they think, well, I'm still having periods. I don't have hot flushes. It can't be menopause. And the other thing that really happens to confuse people is that, you know, your symptoms can come and go in perimenopause in particular. Like your ovaries don't just sort of pack up and leave. Like they become erratic. And so some months can be better than others. And that's really confusing. And I have a lot of women who'll say, I made the appointment three months ago and then I felt like a fraud, but now my symptoms are back again. And and so that throws people, I think. It's a bit of a roller coaster. Mm bit of a hormonal roller coaster that you're sort of strapped into in your 40s yeah so what um treatments are available to women to help with their symptoms like we mentioned hrt there but that's not the only one and i suppose you hear people talk about how important diet is um and exercise and all those things at this time absolutely so lifestyle is really really important and i think the first thing to do is sort of recognize that it's happening and then the next thing to do is to talk about it so whether that's to friends and family to your gp to a menopause specialist i mean whoever you're kind of comfortable with and to help sort of process a lot of what's going on and figure out well what's hormonal and and what's not because obviously it often happens at a time in life when people also have lots of other stressors you know aging parents and kids in school and a busy job and work and home life so it's worth kind of teasing out like what's potentially causing what here um and to recognize that these are symptoms that could potentially go on for you know like hot flushes last for seven to ten years on average so um you know it sounds like I'm, I'm not full of bad news I promise like there is good, <laughs> good news along with this so um but in terms of treatments yeah so really important that you look at kind of the lifestyle stuff so exercise is really important and then I talk to most women about, you know, this is a good time in life to recognize your risk for heart disease and um, bone disease. And, and so as part of that, we talk about vitamin D, calcium in your diet, weight bearing exercise. Um, we talk about caffeine intake and alcohol, um, not necessarily about cutting these things out, but maybe just recognizing there's a link between how much caffeine or alcohol you're, you know, you're drinking or taking and how bad your symptoms might be. Um, it's important to talk about vaginal and, and sexual health. So I think that gets missed an awful lot. And and even again, if you're not having hot flushes or those other symptoms, if you have really bad vaginal dryness or more urine infections than usual or really painful sex, there are things that need to be treated well, as well. And we treat them differently. So, you know, you break it down into medications with hormones and medications with no hormones. Um, in terms of medications with hormones that's your hormone replacement therapy which we can kind of go into in more detail if you want and then the non-hormonal medications there's plenty of other medications we use for women who can't take hormones you know for whatever reason because of their past medical history or because they choose not to um and then we talk about vaginal and like therapy differently so that's that's different again so we'd often use just local vaginal estrogen which is really safe to help with vaginal dryness so there's this whole array of different things that can be used it's not a one-size-fits-all um Quiva, you just a little bit to go into the hrt thing because Hel- helen alluded to it there about the link between hrt and breast cancer which was 
prevalent a few years ago. Could you sort of tell us what your take is on HRT and how useful it is for women? So hormone replacement therapy, it's really a combination of two main hormones, so estrogen and progesterone, and there's loads of different ways of taking them um, and in different um, doses. And so it's quite individualized. A lot of the studies that came out in the late 90s and early 2000s that would have created this big um, hoo-ha initially about breast cancer and HRT. When you actually look back at them, the the average age of woman in those studies was about 63. So a little bit older than the average woman we would be initiating hormone therapy for. Um, And they used a lot of kind of older fashioned type of hormones. So the hormone therapy that would have been used back then was actually equine estrogen. So it was derived from um, pregnant mare's urine. And we, although that's still around, it's not really used much anymore. So now we use an estrogen that is called body identical. So it's more similar to your estrogen that your own ovaries produce. And the same with progesterone, the two hormones. So um, in terms of a breast cancer risk, you know, I suppose you have to really put it into context. And what we know is that for most women aged between 50 and 59, starting HRT, if they use hormone therapy for five years approximately, we'll see an extra, somewhere between four and seven extra cases of breast cancer out of a thousand women using HRT. But that's really similar to the additional sort of breast cancer diagnosis you would see in women who drink, you know, 10 to 14 units of alcohol per week, for example. Um, And other things play into breast cancer risk. So your family history, your body mass index, your um, alcohol intake, whether you smoke, you know, and a bunch of other things. So it's important to kind of, contextualize it to the person that's sitting in front of you um we all carry different risks and and hrt is a part of that but for the vast majority of women the benefit they get to their quality of life the benefit they actually get to their heart disease risk the benefit they get on their bone health outweighs the small increase of breast cancer risk for the majority of women okay well that's good is that the good news you were telling us about or is there other good menopause news that we should get into now because it is i think the reason people don't want to talk about it is because we just associate it with negative things that this is a terrible time mm-hmm. that like Helen has described, you know, your life is going to dramatically disimprove and people are going to think things about you that you don't want them to think. And, and that's all we kind of hear. Have you got any, another side of this, the menopause story from all your research? I think knowing that there is something you can do to like that, the, a lot of the physical symptoms are quite manageable and controllable. And I think knowing that this is like, even though it's, a change in your life and things are changing it doesn't have to be something negative like an awful lot of positives happen as you get older you know you get more independence you've more you know you have a lot of the pressures kind of taken off you from other reasons so um I think just changing your attitude in general towards it is something that would be um a really positive thing to do but like you know some of the things that people have tried when they come into me can speak to the desperation I think that happens to some women and um and, and knowing that there's something really effective and safe out there is really important like that's the big positive I think you know don't as you said Helen please don't suffer in silence you know like you said you're just surviving and and that doesn't you know it doesn't have to be that way but you know try and kind of magnets in your knickers and that kind of stuff that's not really the way to go either so who's doing that you know, not oh, it's the thing. Yeah, 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 it's a thing. Yeah, knicker magnets. It's a thing. Yeah, please don't do this. Yeah. What? Okay, well, this <laughs> is to God. Yeah. This is a first for me. I've never heard of knicker magnets. Alan? Knicker you... magnets. Yeah. No, yeah. I'm no, I'm not. We're not selling them here. Don't, don't worry. Yeah, they're, 
the positive aging thing is really important because like you said women are sort of supposed to do it a certain way and it's not supposed to be something to celebrate wrinkles or celebrate just that getting older when in fact it's a, I just think it's an achievement that we're still here that we're still growing that we're still learning you know that should be celebrated more and menopause is part of that and menopause is like it's a part of our lives that we go through and it doesn't have to be all doom and gloom I mean, I'm saying this as someone who hasn't experienced it yet, so it's all right for me. But I was <laughs> interested in a recent article in The Guardian, Quiva, which featured a report. It found female doctors in the UK were retiring early or leaving high positions because of their menopause symptoms and because of the lack of support and understanding in their workplace. So we have to assume that this yeah. is happening in workplaces all over the place. I mean, Helen, you've spoken, you're lucky enough to be in a kind of quite forward-thinking, diverse and inclusive workplace but yeah. uh Quiva, do you find that there's this is an issue for people in their work oh absolutely so like I had someone even recently tell me that she in her particular position in work that like she was offered um or was in a position maybe to go for a promotion and to have a step up in terms of her um her you know place in her workplace and she and she turned away from us so she decided but taking on that level of responsibility that it would just put so much pressure on her with how she was feeling. And I've plenty of other women who'll tell me, even with Zoom calls or um or you know, being in the office place in person, that that with hot like hot flushes that are really severe or um with anxiety that's new, that's never happened them before, and probably a host of other physical symptoms that they find it really obstructive to do to do their job. And I think, you know, employers need to understand that these are not symptoms or problems that can absolutely occlude someone from doing their job. It's about working around them. It's about giving people um, leeway and giving them sort of flexibility in their jobs for, you know, whether it's simple things like looking at having, you know, appropriate even fans in the workplace to cool people down and access to cool water and like all, I don't know, like kind of simple straightforward strategies but as well just the level of understanding of like knowing you know if people aren't sleeping well you know flexible hours and all that kind of thing that goes with it but it's not like you said Helen it's just not talked about enough I think to bring that in. I think maybe just to to come in there because I you know I, I am ambitious still I feel I have to declare that but um I remember reading an article, I'm not sure if it was this, that Guardian one, Roisin, but I remember reading an article at, at the early days of when I'd started taking the HRT and I'd been to the GP. And there was a quote from um, a professional lady. I can't remember the circumstance, but just it put the frighteners on me. What it, she said was, I gave up my job because I just couldn't, you know, I downscaled on my, on my, uh, my career. I, I actually left the, the workplace that I had been in even though I was still ambitious, I just felt I couldn't cope and it wasn't worth trying to hide the symptoms. That just really hit me really hard. It's, there's so much, you know, I feel I can give. I'm sure, you know, many people, it's, there's symptoms happening that you can manage, you know, flexible working for sure, but even working with your employer the same way um, as there's many, I suppose, others having a dialogue with their HR department about other topics just work through it and you know I still feel I have a lot to give I think I feel lucky that I'm I'm able to keep contributing and I don't have to feel in that position where I just can't do this anymore. 
Quiva, is there a right mm-hmm. way to go about having that conversation with your employer? I mean, uh, Helen did it and she, she did, seems to have managed it quite well, but, you know, sort of avoided the M word, shall we say. But isn't that something that you should be able to say, OK, here's where I'm at. This is go- this is going on in my life. Just letting you know I'm uh, this is what I'm experiencing at the moment. But it changes. Is, is that something you think a mature and you know civilized workplace can incorporate those conversations? So that's assuming some level of maturity and civility for you know for everybody out there and, and I guess it's different but for everyone and, and depends on where you work but time and place is probably really important so um and and down to the, the individual's level of comfort with sharing information that is really personal I mean nobody wants to go into their boss and say like here's my you know my period tracker on my phone and the, you know so you might not want to like divulge everything you know so I think maybe have a think about first, you know, what symptoms are bothering you the most and what you're happy to talk about. And be conscious and, and protective of your own privacy and what's important to you. Um, but then time and place. So maybe, you know, pick instead of doing it sort of on the on the hoof and you're on the way out the door, like a lot of women I would have found in practice, set the time aside, like make a meeting, actually go in and dedicate. It's important. Like prioritize us, you know, and dedicate the time to it and go in and and sit down and have a, a discussion that is set aside and private um, and maybe explain the impact it's having on your workflow or your ability to do your particular job and then and suggest I think what would help so I'm sure a lot of employers would love to hear you know like, this is what's going to help me whether it's you know going back to whether it's flexible hours or whatever it happens to be but just to kind of have that discussion about for me this is what would help because I suppose there's a lot of assumption and maybe if you tell someone you know I'm menopausal and, and I'm having these issues they'll assume oh, it must be hot flushes and they'll kind of make amends for you know to kind of get around that when in fact the problem is you know mood issues or emotional or sleep or whatever it might it might be something else altogether so you know I think be upfront and and in general we just need to be better about um advocating for ourselves I think as women in general and stop feeling like it's going to you know change the way that someone sees you you know the menopause is a normal thing that everybody goes through but um so it shouldn't change our it's not it's not a matter of opinion like it's not something it doesn't reflect on you as a person in any way this is something that's happening to you um so I think yeah to have the confidence I think to go in and and, and bring up a conversation like that but time and place I think is really really important Um, Helen, how are you doing now with uh, with all your symptoms and a year into this kind of journey that you've spoken about? Yeah, I'm. I think things have got better since I've moved to the the new treatment. Um, I think what I'd say first of all is I'm conscious of the with the symptoms that I have, and some of them are getting slightly better. I'm conscious that some of the supports or things that sustained me were taken away. So, for example. The joint pain I used to go walking or you know previously I did 5k runs and that was great mentally it just and it you know it, it brought me back it sustained me um I've my shape has totally changed you know I have put on weight but I would like to say my shape has changed I've much broader I've you know I think it's bigger than just a weight thing um, so even going shopping for clothes or feeling comfortable going out socially or that's you know I think for women without sounding frivolous, that is important. You don't feel, you feel you are transitioning into, 
you know, I'm over the hill now. What's the point? You know, and we're in a society where a lot of it is about how you look, but you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to look in a particular way. So how am I doing? I'm doing okay. I'm trying to be kind with myself. So no, I'm not as thin as I was 10 years ago. No, I'm not you know, my concentration isn't as good. I can lose my train of thought in the middle of a sentence. You know, there's lots of different, I'm not going out running anymore, but if I go out for a walk, great. If I do yoga, great. So I think I'm trying to be kind to myself. And I think I'm trying not to put pressure on myself, which I think a lot of us can do, especially, you know, with magazines and social media to feel or to think that you have to look a particular way to be of value in society. That's been a huge transition for me is, and it's even in the last few weeks, just focusing on small things. Um, you know, I'm drinking my water, I'm getting my yoga classes in, um, I'm going for a walk if I can. If I get a good night's sleep, it's, you know, great. I, then I'll read a book the next day. So I think it's just being kind with yourself, acknowledging I'm not 30 anymore, and that's fine <laughs> as well. I don't, you know, I don't think, and I think, I think partly that's why I can't think of a role model. I can think of plenty of role models of, say, actresses or social people on social media, influencers and so on, where it's a lot about how you look. Um, but I can't, I, I struggle to think of a role model of somebody in their 50s, somebody slightly ahead of me on the journey, you know, who's an accomplished woman, whether it's raising a family, whether it's a career, whether it's a mix of both, whether it's minding their parents, whatever it is who, you know, that's the achievement. It's not the focus on how they look. So I'm not sure, is everyone the same? Who who are the role models out there for somebody in their 50s and 60s? Maybe we should um, ask our listeners and get them to nominate some of these 50-something female role models that we could all look up to for doing, just for living their lives in a great way and not for, you know, always knowing what lipstick to wear and looking in the latest cool clothes or whatever yeah. it is, but just just for being a woman and embracing all of that and, and and a role model. So I think this is something we could look into because I, I agree with you. I mean, there's so much more for women and what they have to do than just the aspect of what somebody presents like. And yet we are reduced to that so much and people are rewarded. Oh, isn't she looking, look, Helen Mirren, amazing because she still manages to look somehow glamorous and attractive. But and that's great for Helen Mirren, but it doesn't mean that that's what the only achievement is in, in older sort of middle age or late middle age kind of thing. Anyway, I'm just having a little stream of consciousness. <laughs> Quiva, I'm going to leave the last word to you. Like, what what would you like to say in, in maybe a more positive note about menopause that to try and take away that feeling of, oh, you know, either grossness or shame or just, ick, I don't want to talk about it. How do we kind of sell ourselves to cop on in that regard and just see it as part of the natural transition of life? I think it's seeing yourself as deserving and being worth, you know, not putting up with something that's having a negative impact on your quality of life. It's it's not feeling this constant you know, attitude of I should just put up and shut up and get on with it. And I think as women, we actually we we like carry that sensation around with us quite a lot um, on a day to day basis of feeling like I don't want to be moany and I don't want to be a complainer. And so, you know, it's not this is, you know, see this as a health, you know, you owe it to yourself to go in and address this particular issue if it's affecting your quality of life 
and to kind of you know celebrate yourself go in and say I'm like totally worth a consultation I'm worth setting aside the time and, and my career is worth it and my relationship at home with my family is worth it to dedicate a bit of time to sorting this out because there is so much that we can do there are safe treatments out there and lots that we can do and there are you know there are doctors and um, healthcare professionals out there like who are more than happy to sit down and and talk to you about it properly and give it the time that it deserves so don't you know to quote Helen I guess don't suffer in silence reach out that's a good way to end when it does happen to me um Quiva you're the first person I'm going to be getting on the phone to for sure I'm going straight no I won't be giving you any nicker magnets it's okay (laughs) well we have we've heard of this (laughs) nerd and now we have the menopause nerd and I think that's the title of your book Quiva so no pressure (laughs) we'll we'll promote it here on the podcast the menopause nerd sounds good to me and and (laughs) Helen we wish you all the best and it sounds like you're on a little bit of a coming out of it maybe and I found the right treatment and and the good thing is that now you've spoken on the women's podcast all your friends who you haven't really talked to about it they all know all your secrets (laughs) I'm sure they'll come talking to you now about everything which is great because I think the more that we're just talking about this like normal things then it's better for everybody and it doesn't become this big thing shrouded in a big secret or shameful thing it's not that it's perfectly normal the menopause you heard it here first um thank you (laughs) so much for for coming on to talk to me about it and i'm sure we'll return to this subject again because it is really important but for now uh quiva and helen thank you so much thanks roshan thank you that was helen kerwin and quiva hartley there and thanks to both of them for talking to us about something that should not be taboo and i hope you found it helpful this podcast is brought to you by green and blacks a rich smooth truly delicious chocolate experience. Now you'll all remember early lockdown, the confusion, the fear, the anxiety and some of you who are Twitter users might also remember a string of tweets from a comedian called Laura Lex who when she was bored in a hotel room in Scotland on the eve of Britain's lockdown started tweeting about the sensible no-nonsense man of some of our dreams Jurgen Klopp. In these uncertain times, we all need a coping mechanism and Laura Lex has found the obvious one, imagining life married to Jurgen Klopp. Uh, She thinks maybe he has something to do with football. More importantly, he definitely knows how to efficiently stack a dishwasher and would tell you honestly if you were being unreasonable about a colleague. Well, when Laura began tweeting the often quite erotic Klopp fantasy tweets, it sparked a chord with thousands of people, including Marion Keyes, who tweeted that she'd like to read a whole book from Laura. And in fact, within two weeks, Laura had a literary agent and then a two book deal. And her first book, Klopp actually, is out now and it's hilarious, it's warm and it's a deeply silly diary of everyone's favourite baseball cap wearing respectable German football manager. I had such a laugh talking to her. She really cheered me up and it was a great distraction from the uncertainty of this time. And I hope you enjoy this too. Here's my chat with Laura Lex, author of Klopp, actually. Laura, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You have had a very interesting lockdown. Will you tell us your story in terms of where you were when your tweets went viral and how they became viral and all of that? Yeah, so I am a stand-up comedian. Um, I live in Brighton and 
13th of March 2020, I was in Glasgow doing a gig uh, and I'd got the overnight train up thinking that it would be like the Hogwarts Express and I'd go to sleep and like, you know, wake up in Glasgow like, ah, oh, I'm ready to start the day. That had not happened. I'd been awake all night uh, and, and it was that weird week. So it was the week before lockdown was enforced in England anyway. I think Ireland was already locked down at this point, if I remember rightly. Yeah, I think we were a little bit ahead of you. Yeah, <laughs> on everything. Um, our government was still dithering with whether they were just going to let us die or not. Um, and uh, and so there was this like weird we were at the gig and everybody was having a good time and sort of being like, yay, but feeling a bit weird. And I went back to my hotel that night and I tweeted something, which I'll read to you now. This was the tweet that started it all. I tweeted, if I ever met Jurgen Klopp, I'd say, oh my God, if we have a baby, we should call it Clip, just so he'd raise an eyebrow at me and tell me I'm a moron and I'd be so naked by the time he'd finished doing that. And that was it, right? Give us a bit of context, though. What possessed you to tweet that? Tell us about Jurgen Klopp. If you don't know who Jurgen Klopp is, that's fine, because I promise you, I know next to nothing about the actual man. What it was, was that about five days before or so, I'd been grazing through the internet, and I'd seen a press conference with him. So he's a football manager of Liverpool. And somebody in a press conference said to him, what do you think about coronavirus? Um, uh, when will things be back to normal? Like, do you think social distancing and masks is important, blah, blah, blah. And he basically, so he's this sort of bespectacled, like baseball cap wearing dude, like must be late 40s, early 50s. I don't even know how old he is. And he is sitting there and he just went, why are you asking me? I'm a football manager. And my interest just went, I'm sorry, who is this? I have to say he's, in my eyes, he's gorgeous anyway. But then the things that come out of his mouth are just so sensible and so attractive because he's just saying it as it is all the time and he there's no bullshit no he just he's so mild-mannered he comes across but then you see some videos where it really loses his temper and you're like oh okay you've got two sides <laughs> but basically he he just was so like I'm not an expert don't ask me because that's just spreading information that can't be helpful. Go and ask a disease expert. Ask me about football. So then I was like, well, I'm interested. So I started looking at more press conferences of his and he's just great. Like there's this one where a Sun um, journalist starts asking him questions. And again, if you don't know the Sun Liverpool, like I haven't got time for this, but. Well, everyone knows about Hillsborough and they know, yeah. Yes. He sort of goes, "Um, I don't talk to the Sun. Like I'm, you know, you know why. I know why you're a nice guy, but all the time that you work at the sun, like you're very welcome to sit here and listen. And there's no like, no feeling like he's showboating to to get this to go viral. It's not like, I don't talk to the disgusting sun, blah, blah, blah. It's just very professional, but very, no, this is what we're going to do. And I just thought like he, I mean, I don't even know if I thought it through that, that carefully, but I, I just fancied him but because of who he was not because of what you look like like it really was a personality thing and then he's quite attractive oh, sorry I think he's quite attractive anyways yeah, yeah I think he is too but it was so like such a refreshing tonic to have somebody there who who put professionalism and expertise first like I don't know if you remember I think it was a Michael Gove quote around the time of Brexit but the UK is sick of experts um 
And watching Jurgen Klopp, I just thought, no, we're not. We're desperate for people to do what they're good at. And and why have, like in England, UK, you know, why have we got a, a journalist for a prime minister and these people with no experience do, doing these jobs? And he just seemed like the antidote to this, just somebody that wanted to be good at things and have things done right at the expense of being flamboyant. So you were on the train. You did this one tweet. Did you have a thread? So I'm in a hotel by oh, the then. hotel by then. Sorry. So you're on, in the hotel. Had you got a thread prepared? No. Um, so were you literally off the top of your head? Just you kept kind of you, you liked what you were doing. You were having fun. Yeah. So the next tweet I added, I said, we go to Ikea and I'd be like, oh, this lamp is so cute. And he'd say, no, Laura, we are just getting the things we came here for. But then at the till, he'd let me have a bag of dimes anyway, because I'm cute. Then we drive home in our nice Volvo. <laughs> and that was the next tweet. And then I quite liked doing Twitter threads. So I sort of added another one. I said, we'd be getting ready to go out on a Saturday. And I'd say, do I look fat in this? And he'd say, you have a pretty reasonable body fat amount, I think. But if you're unhappy, here are some fitness regimes you could get into. And then we'd sensible fuck. <laughs> sensible fuck. And also we have to add, if people don't know, that he's German. So there's that added German. element to it. <laughs> yeah. Very kind of direct and, you know, everything's very straight. Yeah. So I added, I mean, I don't even know how many. I added sort of 10 tweets that night, really. And by this point, it was at one o'clock in the morning. And I'm here in this Ibis in Glasgow, just sort of like, you know, like looking at my Twitter feed and, and looking at all of the like, is the pandemic going to hit here? What's happening in Italy? Like waves and I'm freaking out. And, I, and then I went to bed. Like some people were interacting with the tweets at this point, like, you know, and I sort of, I think I remember saying, oh, I might add some more to this in the morning. And then I woke up in the morning and I didn't have a mask or sanitizer at this point. So I was just like, I'm not going to go out. It feels too risky. I'm just going to stay in my room today and watch You've Been Framed and <laughs> keep tweeting. So I started tweeting some more and then it just sort of, blew up I think because everybody was on the internet that day just sort of like looking at the pandemic and then this sort of caught people's imagination because it was a bit distracting and a bit silly but Laura also because loads of people fancied him as well yeah. I hadn't, <laughs> hadn't found a voice for that and you were giving us a voice because I saw that thread as you were doing it probably the next morning and I was just like Oh my God. Now, my, my boyfriend supports Liverpool, so I should by rights be interested in Liverpool. But unfortunately, I just don't have any interest in football, so I'm not. <laughs> but as soon as Jurgen Klopp became the manager, I was suddenly going, oh, uh, tell me, tell me about this guy and watching his press conferences with no interest in the result of the football, but knowing that he'd always say something. So I think you were giving voice to something that a lot of us, some people didn't even realise how much they fancied him until we started to imagine what would it be like to be married to Jurgen Klopp it would be amazing because he'd be so cool and he'd just make you so you'd be so yeah it was amazing I think that's the thing so then like obviously it went really viral and lots of people were interacting with it and then lockdown happened and within I think two weeks I had a literary agent because lots of people were like turn it into a book now we have to I have to interrupt you here because one of the people who got involved to say how great it was was Marion Keys. Yeah, oh my God, I nearly died. She's a great friend to this podcast. And I was just speaking to Marion this morning and I told her you were coming on the podcast and she said to say she absolutely loves what you're doing. And I think she gave a quote for the book as well because we should say that you've written a book of this. You've got a two book deal. And she also said that it would, would it be okay if she had a timeshare? She thinks a weekend, a month or something with, with Jürgen would be would be lovely. So anyway, she's fully she on board. She can have whatever she likes. I think she was the first person to ask 
for it to be a book and I was just sort of like jaw on the floor again still in this ibis in Glasgow going like is this happening on the yeah I guess so (laughs) and then within two weeks you had a literary agent yeah and then we sort of started talking to publishers and there were various offers and we started discussing what book could come out of it and I was very um very adamant that I didn't want to push the joke too far you know like it's based on some tweets and it's a pretty delicate sort of idea for a joke so there were all sorts of like what could the plot be and I was like I don't think we can give it a plot like I just think it'll die a little death if I try and do that so we came up with this idea to do what we've done which is a sort of diary so all these separate entries um and as it developed it it kind of became really lovely because like I suffer with quite bad mental health and I've always tried to be really open about that. I've got generalized anxiety disorder and, and depression. And um, and the, the book sort of became in a way, like for me anyway, a little self-help guide because this sort of Klopp character was just there asking your anxious brain to be reasonable. And I was like, oh, maybe that's what I was doing all along, but like via this sexy man. Um this sort of voice going like, hey, you know, this fringe you've had cut in isn't that bad. <laughs> you can still go to Sainsbury's, don't worry. <laughs> and then you're like, yes, I knew that deep down. As a 33-year-old woman, I knew that a haircut did not mean I had to cancel my whole life. But at the time, I couldn't see past the blind panic. <laughs> and it just sort of, yeah. It, then I sort of kept writing and thinking like, half what do I wish my actual husband would do around the house? Do you have an actual husband? I do, who's a Tottenham supporter. What? What does he think of this? was really fun for us. (laughs) Yeah, what does he think of all the club obsession then? Um, I think he wishes it was Tottenham-based, but I don't even know who manages Tottenham, so (laughs) uh, that can't happen. Um, He, bless him, he was so good, because obviously, like, you're in the middle of lockdown, and I'm writing a book about pretending to be married to somebody else, which wasn't ideal on top of pretty bad circumstances. But then also, I know nothing about football at all. So every kind of half an hour while I was writing, I'd have to turn to Tom and be like, so what's a free kick and what's a penalty? Or like, what might what formation might a thing be? Or like, I'm trying to write a sexy pun about something curling into a goal mouth. What word might a, a a talky man on the commentary say and it was just like bless him and he, and he just kept looking at me being like I can't believe you are writing this book like of all the people that should have been paid to write a book about this football stuff it's not you <laughs> so now listen you've given us a bit more of a flavor and I think that is so interesting that um the imaginary clock with his all his sensible advice and insights helped you a little bit with your own irrationality say or your anxiety can you read us a bit or is there any bit in the book which sort of gives us an example of that so this is my favorite chapter okay. I mean it's a couple of pages we should say the book is called Klopp actually yeah great title it just has his baseball cap and his glasses and a red cover it's a very good cover it's excellent so this is the chapter for me that kind of sums it up so uh it says I'd be getting glammed up to go out for the night to a swanky gala or whatever the football Oscars is The woman in the YouTube video sweeps her hand gracefully from left to right and a perfect black line appears. It elegantly frames her beautiful almond-shaped eye, doubling its apparent size and her beauty. I lift my wand to my own eye and mimic her actions perfectly, creating a wiggly black smudge that inexplicably has a break midway before blotching out into a messy puddle in the cavernous wrinkles I seemingly just developed. 
fuck it, I exclaim, lifting a cotton pad to my eye to remove the offending graffiti and start a game. We're getting ready to go to a fancy dinner. Well, I am getting ready. I've waxed everything, bleached what I can't bring myself to wax, squeezed my curves into underwear that makes curves rigid, and selected a dress specially designed by a series of experts to persuade red-blooded males that they could have sex with a woman over 25 without vomiting. I have been between the bathroom and the bedroom for the best part of four hours preparing. 20 minutes before we are due to leave, my husband will go to the effort of choosing which colour length of silk to tie loosely around his neck, and we will appear at the party looking somehow like we have made the same amount of effort with our appearance. I am nervous. These events make me feel giddy and sick because I'll have to make small talk and try to fit in in a room where I feel like an outsider. Are you nearly ready? He appears in the door carrying a freshly ironed shirt on a hanger. No, I'm not. I'm not nearly bloody ready. Do I look nearly bloody ready? The words come screeching out of my mouth before I can stop them. Fear kicks off my fight or flight, but the irony of it all is that I'm fighting the one person to whom I want to cling. He sighs deeply. You are not looking forward to going. I instantly want to cry, or at the very least stop lashing out. No, I say, keeping my words monosyllabic to give myself the best chance of keeping the tears in. It would be a shame to cry now and ruin the black line I have finally managed to draw. I briefly wonder if there is potential in a fashion where you only have to wear eye makeup on the side of your face that comes naturally to your dominant hand. Feels like the sort of thing Tilda Swinton could make fashionable. What is making you nervous, he says, his gentle tone enraging me. Does he not realise these are not nerves? This is not normal anxiousness. This is absolute terror. This is the big one. This party could be the end of days. I don't want to make small talk with new people, I say, and it sounds so small. The fears that loom so large when they're tormenting me in my mind have spitefully metamorphosed into petty, hollow-sounding peeves now they are loose in the air. Fears that swore to me they were apocalyptic now waggle their tongues back in my direction as I imagine them landing on somewhere else where they weigh several tons less than my terror promised. Are you worried they will find you too interesting, he says, removing his T-shirt to put on the crisp white shirt. I smile at his attempts to defrost my fear. I don't know what I'm worried about, I say, feeling the muscles up my spine relax and sag as I give in to my honesty. Well, to know how to play today, we must look at our previous performances, he says, applying the logic that has earned him an impressive cabinet of silverware. I feel inadequate, I admit. I second guess every word I want to say and I worry that I'm boring to everyone I talk to. The tears that have been threatening my clumpy mascara leak out uninvited and I am desolate. Do you think I am a good manager, he asks me, throwing my thoughts off course with this question. I ponder, picturing him on the sidelines, hugging his team after a goal. Of course, I say, not needing more than a second to think. And what is the job of a manager, he continues gently. This I cannot answer instantly. I'm confident it's something to do with the phrase at the end of the day. But beyond that, the details of his working life are not my area of expertise. Thankfully, he is not waiting for me to respond. I choose the team, he informs me. I select the best people and then I get the best out of them. You are the person I chose for my own team. You are the best. So if you feel unsupported out there on the pitch, then we must change the formation. He wipes away my tears with his words and then dominates a full Windsor. At the party that night, he barely leaves my side. And when he does, I know his eyes will find a gap in the crowd through which to meet mine if I need them. In every conversation, I am introduced as a woman of substance and interest. He finds ways to include me in subjects where I would never normally find a foothold. Strong fingers are interlaced with mine whenever I feel my hands trembling with nerves. Every anecdote I tell has a smile or a laugh waiting for it at the end to lift my confidence into the next one. When we return home, we hit the showers happy. It's amazing. 
It's even better than your tweets. Because I haven't had the joy of reading it yet. But that, oh my God, he's like this beautiful little thing on your shoulder, just helping you through. And yeah, that's the thing. I mean, one, I would be really uncomfortable if I felt like this was all about what he looked like. I, I know that I would find that like a bit like ugh. creepy. Yeah, it's creepy. Um, so it is definitely about his personality. And then two, like when it came to being a whole book, I desperately wanted it to be more than just the sort of smut puns. And obviously there are a ton of smutty puns in there. Hitting the showers. I know it is a football thing, but also I was thinking of the showers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, you know, a lot of it, like that's probably the most um, intense chapter. But I love that one because I, like, I've had several panic attacks. I've ruined so many weddings for, for me and my husband, like not for the bride and groom, thankfully. I don't shriek down the aisle or anything, but I've had so many issues with going to social events. And I just thought like, what would I want to be able to tell myself? How would I want to remember it? Like, you know, whether you're in a relationship or not, people love you in the world. So do you think they're idiots or do you think there's something about you worth loving? And how can you try and remember that at the time and sort of get over these these nonsense fears? Because your brain will always tell you that the things you're worried about are bigger than they are. And I sort of wanted to build a few things in there. So like through the book, they, they obviously they have their two-year-old clip. Sorry, they have a two-year-old child clip. Yes. Clip clop. Yes, clip clop. She's their little daughter. Um, there's all sorts of things like, you know, Laura feels insecure dropping her off at school because she doesn't fit in with the other mums. And, you know, th- there's all sorts of insecurities about keeping up with the Joneses and am I a good mother and am I doing this or am I giving up my career to be a mother and all these worries. And then the sort of little guardian angel clop to to sort of help you on your way. Now, Laura, the big question is, does clop know all about this obviously he does but has he have you heard anything from the actual clop do we know what he thinks no see my theory with this is like he he can't be that mad or i'd have heard from his lawyers but (laughs) i don't quite know what he'd be able to say the poor guy because it's weird like however you want to spring it and however much i justify that like it's not objectifying because he doesn't behave like an object he's like mainly about his thoughts and blah blah blah. it's still weird so and he's not on social media so what's the poor guy supposed to do be like thanks for the creepy book laura that's really kind of you (laughs) i I mean he must know about it surely he doesn't live in a bunker but um i i just can't quite work out what the poor guy's supposed to say (laughs) but will it will will somebody be sending it to him or what's the formal kind of thing what do your publishers think i don't know if they're sending i've tried to stay out of everything except the writing of it because i just i hate all the technical stuff but um yeah i i genuinely i have no idea they should at least send his wife a copy so she can leaf through it being like no he's not that good no (laughs) no he doesn't do this no (laughs) yeah that's the other side of the story isn't it yeah what's he really like this is a really interesting year for you i said at the beginning because you know as a comedian you know you're up in that ibis hotel on the verge of all your gigs being cancelled uh your livelihood you know such as a, a gigging comedian is which is very tough i'd imagine um sort of wiped out everyone in the arts has i think have has suffered so much i mean so many people have suffered but i think the arts is is such a tragic story um from theater to comedy but you had that sort of terrible thing then you you did the tweets and uh, had a literary agent can you sort of describe for us that kind of roller coaster that you've been on it was just 
um, for ages, I, I just didn't really trust that it was all going to happen. So I, I sort of interviewed with a few literary agents and then I chose one. And then we started talking about deals and I felt like I'd fluked it. And I think everybody feels like this about good things that happened to them. But because the deals came in and sort of blew my mind, it was a two book deal. It wasn't just, can you turn this book around? Um, ha ha. It was, you're quite clearly a writer. What do you want to do? And Lisa and Kate at Two Roads, which is the publisher I went with, had all these meetings happening on Zoom as well. So I'm in pajamas from the waist down talking to these like literary women that are blowing my mind. And that was the other thing was like in comedy, it's men, wall to wall men. And then suddenly I got into books and was like, oh, I found the women. Oh, this is great. Um, so I'm having all these like mind blowing meetings where they're like, you're quite clearly very interesting and you're a great writer. What do you want to do? And then the offers start coming in and they're like, um, two books, write the clock book and then write a novel. What do you want to write? And I've had an idea for a TV script on the back burner for years now that's never quite got off the ground. And I described this to Lisa and Kate and they went, we love it, write that. And what, what is that? So it's all based on a women's netball team, um, a sort of group of uh, women start an amateur netball group to give themselves a a hobby that isn't about babies or jobs or their partners or you know and it's women from all sorts of like you know there's a millennial that's lost their job there's a woman who's retired and doesn't know what our identity is there's the doctor that doesn't want to mingle with the rest of the town because she's seen them all naked you know there's and they all start playing this game that they haven't played since primary school and it's such a stupid game and so they said you know write this and then but the other sort of side to this sort of personal coin was that my husband and I had put an offer in on a house before lockdown. We'd fight, He's a comedian as well. Um, so when lockdown happened, we were like, well, we've just got to pull out of buying this house, our dream house, like, you know, our first house. Um, and then the deal for the book came in and it was like, oh, right. No, we can we can still go. Like, Let's do this. So it's sort of we then managed to move. But then the book, the clock book, because we needed it to be out in time for the Christmas market. And that's how books work. I only had, I think, seven or eight weeks to write it. Um, it wow, was Laura. such a tight turnaround. I think by the time we actually signed the the thing to I handed it in in mid-June. I think I only had sort of April and maybe 10 weeks to write the whole book. So I was sort of in lockdown with no new stimulus for creativity. <laughs> I remember, I distinctly remember for one, there's a chapter in there about planning permission. And I distinctly remember I was sitting in my flat at the time before we'd moved going, there's just nothing else to write about. There's no more things. I can't. So I went for a run, which I, I hate running, but I was like, well, I've, I've got to do my hour of exercise that we're allowed. Went running and I ran past one of those planning permission signs stuck to a lamppost and just in my head went, Klopp would read those. No one else reads those they're just weird bits of laminated paper that appear on lampposts and then you wonder why building work's happening but he would read them so he sort of then ran home and was like I've thought of another chapter <laughs> Here we go. and you just and so I was sort of trying to write in this weird lockdown world and God, yeah, your, your agents and your editors must love you that you've you're you're a, obviously they saw you were a writer but then you were someone who could turn the stuff out as well because that wasn't guaranteed I mean you what if you had a block what if you couldn't do it they were so great about that though to be honest Kate who's my editor just 
she was so gentle with me because I'm not very good with criticism. <laughs> like I'm a stand-up comic naturally. When someone criticizes me, they get told to leave the club. <laughs> like I don't take heckling well. So I was quite nervous about having feedback on writing you stuff. And and she was so sort of gentle and, and guiding with me and, and sort of like because the, the the first bit was the hardest, I suppose, because trying to go from writing the tweets to writing slightly longer chapters was was in my head like how am I going to stretch this without breaking it and changing the tense as well so the tweets are all in the I'd be tense I don't know what these tenses are called but they are all in that tense and then that wasn't quite going to work I don't think for the the book so I had to change it all into the present tense and then there were sort of discussions about like are we going to include the original tweets or are you going to take the idea from the original tweets and turn those into their own chapters um, but in the end, we decided to include the original tweets as a sort of introduction to the book and an explanation of why the book exists and then write all new material for the for the rest of it. I think that makes sense, actually, that you give people a context because I suppose not everyone will, will have seen it. So what's next for you? Are you stuck into your netball novel? And what is life like now for you? So just for this month, there's a few gigs here and there. So I have been out on the road a little bit more. I'm starting to put together the novel I also do some writing on YouTube. Um, so I do a thing called The Audience Adventure, which is where I write a book based on votes from the people watching it. So I write a chapter, give them a vote, and then they all vote what outcome they want. And then I write the next chapter the next day and then read it that night. Um, and then I've also got a, a television show that I'm sort of writing at the moment. I'm in production with. So that's quite exciting as well. It's all go. I'm sat at home writing. <laughs> Did the television show come out of the clock thing as well? Well, kind of. The interest in it did, actually. After that, I had several meetings because I sort of said, like, because I went from 8,000 Twitter followers to 42,000 overnight with this clop stuff. So I just sort of said, like, while everyone's looking at me, I've got all these TV shows. Is anybody interested? And like 10 different TV production companies went, ah, yes. Um, so we sort of picked one there. So I've got the show that I'm working on about uh, eco-anxiety, which is something I suffer with. And, and I was never able to conceive children. Um, so I'm sort of working on a script that kind of combines that difficulty of that age where you're sort of going like do I want babies is the planet going to be alive long enough for me to have babies do, am I selfish enough to just have them anyway or is that selfish or is that actually what you're meant to do as a human and ugh, so I'm sort of working on a comedy script <laughs> about that brilliant well I just think it's one of the great stories of lockdown one of the most uplifting and you were there at a moment when we were all freaking out to make us laugh and to remind us about like just how funny life can be and using your imagination to such beautiful effect. Like it really was very special and uh, no wonder Marion Keyes. And I'm, Marion Keyes' tweet at the time was actually, I would read a whole book of this, which is amazing. And now you have a two book deal. One of them's in the world. Maybe you'll hear from Klopp in real life. I think it would be kind of nice. I think you might. He's I'll a good find guy. him one day. <laughs> You'll get him one day. Um, Laura, it's been absolutely lovely talking to you. I hope you'll come back and talk to us when you have your novel out as well. Best of luck in everything you do. Thank you. Thanks so much to Laura Lex there in the book, which I imagine many of you will buy for friends as a cheering Christmas gift is called Clop Actually. And that's all we have time for. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. That's it from us here on the Women's Podcast. But mind yourselves, and we'll talk to you next time.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.